0: A quotation. It's from a book entitled The uh, Selected Readings of Fritz Kunkel. And Fritz Kunkel was a a German psychiatrist, MD psychiatrist, uh, who migrated to this country and practiced in Southern California. He was greatly influenced by Carl Jung and uh, did some definitive work on ego structure, that is to say, the center of consciousness and how we relate to the world. Uh, Particularly, he had a theory that you've heard me espouse and perhaps others, and that is that ego growth, that is the the growth of one's own identity, uh, and the structure of the ego comes through crisis. Uh, So much a rule of the universe that... uh, one's own psyche will create a crisis for itself in order to grow. And uh, Jack Sanford, who is an Episcopal priest and a Jungian analyst, has compiled the writings of Kunkel and uh, edited them and has written an introduction. In the introduction, we hear something about Kunkel and then we hear uh, from him. Uh, Kunkel believed that the Christian story, with his emphasis on death and resurrection, best represented the psychological and spiritual process through which the soul must pass on its way to fulfillment, and that Christ pointed the way personally to all those who must undergo such an experience of transformation. The word transformation here is used synonymously with death and resurrection. He also believed that beyond the suffering and tragedy of this life was a transcendental background of love, best represented in the resurrection. But he could not concern himself with denominations, creeds, and churches, because his concern was with the human soul and its immediate relationship with God. Religion for him involved constant creative change, leading into a future development, While, now he's beginning to speak about me, while institutionalized expressions of religion tend to become rigid and intent on preserving the past. His religious convictions were rooted in his own experiences and his belief as a psychotherapist that, in the last analysis, only creative change heals a person. In the last analysis, only creative change heals a person. He then, I remind you, said that the death resurrection story of Christianity is the story of creative change. It is a transition by observation, it is a transformation by experience. Pittman McGee, 88. <laughs> B. Birch has summarized Kunkel, the religious man, very nicely in an article she wrote for the magazine Inward Light. Though he investigated the past where he felt that patterns had been formed, he believed that the future was the important force. As the oak tree is in some unknown fashion contained in the acorn, so to him all future human evolution is contained in each human individual. I will say that again because it's easily overlooked and because of our own ego structure, we tend to want to deflect such a responsibility. All future human evolution is contained in each human individual. As the growth of the acorn is determined by the thing which is to be, that oak oh, tree of the future, so in Dr. Kunkel's view, is each human creature pulled by his own still invisible future form, which molds his psychological development as surely, perhaps most surely, than past experience has conditioned it. In other words, this is very hopeful for us who are victims. Victims of uh, poverty or parents who didn't love us or victims of our own sex or our background or training. Our education at Kunkle believe that the future of possibility has an equally strong force as a past of determination. If it were not so, then why would we go on if we were dissatisfied with where we are? Still a happy whistler, we're glad that he's here. <laughs> when I grew up, uh, we had a, when I first remember growing, starting to grow up, uh, as you know, I haven't done that yet, I had a Methodist preacher who had a list. And he used to say to people that he whistled while he worked. (laughs) He had, that is to say, (laughs) Kunkel, had a little love for the merely conventionally acceptable action, the stereotype, the safe, the palatable. He was too familiar with the powerful elemental and primitive qualities in human beings, knew their capacities for both destruction and construction, and like Walt Whitman, he celebrated them. Reckless honesty was to be preferred to cautious conformity. Daring courage was vastly better than timorous security. His spirituality lay in the vitality and the immediacy of his response to all life his openness to experience his depth of awareness of the relatedness of all humankind and his unshakable conviction that the ultimate goodness and beauty of creation no matter how tragic or terrifying its immediatest aspect his unshakable conviction of the ultimate goodness and beauty of creation, no matter how tragic or terrifying its immediate aspect. That is an understanding of resurrection in the midst of the experience of the cross. Now, this is rather a profound beginning. Uh, and all of this reminds me of Eugene Johnson. You remember Eugene Johnson, he was my roommate in college, he was from Seminole,
1: Oklahoma.
0: Uh, Gene always introduced himself, as you remember, as, hello, I'm Eugene Johnson from Seminole, Oklahoma, which is the hub of the Tri-City area. We woke a Seminole in Holdenville. (laughs) my daddy's from Bowlegs, which is near Henrietta, and you've got to go through Bowlegs to get to Henrietta. (laughs) Gene was six feet, nine inches tall. As he used to reflect, to his best knowledge, he was the only one in Seminole, Oklahoma who was six feet, nine inches tall. Uh, Gene and I wound up at Oklahoma State University together on a basketball scholarship, and uh, both of us having known of each other through the years by rumor and reputation, and we were among the eight scholarships given that year as freshmen. And Gene and I <clears throat> met for the first time uh, the day that we enrolled and were given our room assignment by Mr. Iba, the basketball coach, and he always took his prize pupils and put them in the field house, in the Gallagher Hall, which was the field house where we played basketball. They had a room, and we were uh, the night watchman for the field house basically was our job which was really like putting alcoholics in a whiskey store (laughs) we had the entire uh, field house to ourselves well There were also some Major League Rats which loved to get in our room and occasionally even in our beds. Um, The rats were so bad (laughs) in the field house, for the first week or two, we would get up three or four times a night being responsible as we were for watching the field house at night thinking that people were running up and down the hall one night uh, the fall first fall we lived there and we heard them running up and down the halls and went back to sleep and sure enough somebody robbed the the equipment room Uh, we met that afternoon and introduced ourselves and uh, began to talk and size each other up. And when we could no longer stand it, finally, about 9 o'clock that evening, uh, we didn't even know how to turn the lights on in the field house. We got a basketball and went out on the court to check each other out. Uh, we didn't even have our equipment checked out yet, so we played each other for two hours in the dark by only the light of a long-jean clock that was on the wall in our stocking feet, and we both had such blisters when practice started the next week that we could hardly walk. It was one of the great transformations of my ego to realize that there might be a basketball player my age who was as good as I was. (laughs) It was only the first. And so I remember uh, Gene Johnson when we began to talk about determination of the past and the uh, sort of unsullied call of the future of possibility available to each of us. Because I received a phone call last fall from Gene Johnson, I haven't talked to him in four or five years. I saw him uh, several years ago at the all-college basketball tournament uh, in Oklahoma City. I went there with uh, my... Two brothers-in-law my father-in-law and my number one son who I guess at that time was maybe 13 or 14 maybe it was four years ago in any case they were inducting the all-college Hall of Fame and which was Pete Maravich and Bill Russell and some of the great names of basketball uh, the coach that they were enshrining as the coach of the uh, <coughs> Hall of Fame for the all-college tournament in Oklahoma City was my college basketball coach, Henry Iba, And so uh, he, at halftime, received this great award, and I said to my uh, number one son, would you like to go meet Mr. Iba?" And he said, gosh, do you think he'll remember you? <laughs> one in a series of ego transitions. <laughs> and so I said, well, let's take a chance. And Mr. I was seated in a prominent place on the other side of the court, and so uh, I, with my number one son, came walking around the court and worked our way up, seeing several friends from past years as I went up. Somebody asked me, didn't you play at Oklahoma State? And I said, yes. And they said, how long ago was that? And I said, 20
1: pounds.
0: (laughs) As we got about 10 yards from Mr. Iba, he yelled out, Pitt McGee. And I was so proud that he did remember me. (laughs) There was only a moment there that I thought, what if he doesn't remember me? (laughs) Luckily, uh, he had seen me since college, and I do have a radically different gestalt about me. <laughs> now, I'm warming this up as I love to do with kind of uh, rumming around, rummaging around in my basement of nostalgia, because my theology has come more and more to be my autobiography, as yours ought to be. Now, if you're going to experience God, if you're going to have some epiphany in your life, it's going to be, I'm afraid, in names and faces and places that you know that have been given to you. Uh, If you're going to experience uh, radical transformation, it's going to be within this life. Uh, The radical transformation that will take you out of this life uh, won't be one that we can probably share uh, in this history That'll be at another time in another place so whatever is going on with us it seems to me to be utmost important and all of these characters and events and the roles that you've been given in your life are your story they are your theology all good theology is autobiographical it's a reflection upon experience and so uh, this life that you may feel from time to time is inane or mundane is your experience with God and you won't experience God apart from yourself. And so I commend to you to not be a doddering old nostalgiac as some parish priests become, but I do encourage you to look into the stories of your own existence and the friends and relationships if you want to understand uh, God because God has given you that, your nature, in order to understand God's nature. Gene called me this fall my friend from Seminole, Oklahoma, because he had heard that a mutual friend, also one who was a year ahead of us in Oklahoma State, uh, who, because he tore a cartilage in his knee, wound up in our class and was the reason why I was relegated to being on the bench rather than a starter was because of this untimely event (laughs) where he was put back at class. And uh, you have three choices as to why he played more than I did. One is that the coach liked him better. (laughs) Uh, Two, because uh, he buttered up the coach. (laughs) Or three, because he was better than I was. I was 33 before I chose door number three. (laughs) It came to me. He called me to tell me that uh, Gary Hassman, one of the most interesting characters I've ever met, was in trouble gary hasman grew up in a bedroom community to louisville kentucky which i by coincidence wound up living in louisville the name of the town is anchorage kentucky it's an affluent suburb his father was a very very successful insurance uh, agent had his own agency he came from uh, uh, a family where both parents were alcoholic Uh, gary um, was sent to St. Andrew's School at Sewanee because he was caught with several friends uh, going through downtown Louisville uh, taking a knife and cutting telephones off of pay telephones uh, and then driving around town with the telephones on the wire knocking out car windows. So you see something of his response to life uh, because of... uh, his lack of nurture from parents. You know, we, of course, know in some kind of uh, obvious reflection that uh, who it was that he was hitting out against. Uh, I've had several friends who had those kinds of presentments. One of my dear friends in seminary, God rest his soul, who uh, died this winter, was brute and strange. He and his uh, brother's he used to take bowling balls and go uh, up on a large hill in Wilmington, Delaware and let them loose, uh, destroying cars and windows. When he went to seminary, <laughs> the vote uh, was seven to eight in his favor, eight to seven in his favor. The reason was that, that he had burned down the school
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: in his local town. Uh, Bruton made a transformation while in college and, and went to seminary. He was a great of great affluence. Uh, when he came to the Virginia Seminary, he came in an XKE and bought a townhouse in downtown Alexandria. But he went for his ministry into a poverty-stricken area of Virginia uh, to serve. Uh, Gary Hasman went off to St. Andrew's School, and Gary, because of uh, his complex upbringing, uh, he developed what Kunkel called uh, the star ego state. And that is that if the ego doesn't feel that it's being nurtured and, and being given uh, its place naturally through nurture, the ego will adapt uh, to anything that will give it a security or meaning. And sometimes that is in negative behavior, and sometimes it's in positive behavior, and in many cases it will be in a contradictory boat. Now one of the things that Gary Hassman was able to do was to be obsessive about getting attention and didn't care really whether it was negative or positive and he got a lot of both. And one of the things that he found out because of some natural ability and because in Kentucky like in Indiana and and in some areas of Oklahoma, uh, basketball uh, is king and so one of the things he found out that he could do was shoot a basketball and when he went to St. Andrews he became absolutely obsessive about it and he did nothing else except practice basketball and shoot a basketball so much so that he made high school all-american and was recruited to go to Oklahoma State now at the same time he had some of the most negative obsessive qualities that I've ever seen in a human being Uh, He, like most children of alcoholics, uh, had a terrible drinking problem, even uh, in college. But one of the things that happened to him was that when he was a sophomore, he tore his knee up playing basketball, and so he had to go to Oklahoma City with a locally, regionally famous orthopedic surgeon and uh, had his cartilage replaced, and this was before the day of uh, orthoscopic surgery, so it was a major surgical, surgical procedure that put him back for a year. The point of that is, he decided what he wanted to do then was to become an orthopedic surgeon. And so up to that time, uh, his grades were C- to D+. But he decided that what he wanted to do was to go to medical school and become an orthopedic surgeon. And so he dedicated himself to doing nothing else but studying and he became as obsessive about studying uh, as he was about playing basketball and those are the only two things he did was study and play basketball he never made another B from the time that he decided that uh, he wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon Uh, so much so that he was a finalist for the Rhodes scholarship now I hadn't heard of Gary for years and years and years, but I did know that he went to OU Medical School and became an orthopedic surgeon, trained at Johns Hopkins, and hadn't heard about him since. Now, I'm telling a very tragic contemporary story only because it's public. Jean Gene called me to tell me that he heard that Gary Haspin was in jail. Now, I say, not with any flippancy or any manipulative uh, desire to get a laugh from you, nobody was surprised. And the reason is, of course, because of that real thin line between creativity uh, and destruction, between construction and destruction. And if what we have here is a, in this a growing oak tree out of this acorn, incredible possibility. But because of environment and heredity and a whole lot of things that are totally unaccountable, some of which we can account for, uh, we had a very strong personality that was always a teetering on the edge between doing very creative things and very destructive things. Uh, the facts are that he became as obsessive about making money, evidently, as he was about shooting a basketball and making his grades and becoming an orthopedic surgeon, and that uh, he was involved in a lot of real estate deals and uh, investments of one kind or another, and had uh, begun to go sour all of his investments. And so, uh, piecing the story together best I can, uh, he began to be involved in buying and selling cocaine. Uh, my friend, Gene, called me about that and, and so I did some investigation and it was all indeed true and is. Uh, I wish I had for you a, a, a wonderful happy ending about my friend Gary Hassman who this very moment is in a jail for selling and buying cocaine. I don't have a happy ending to that story. I don't have a, a way to all of a sudden turn it into one of those stories you might read in guideposts, Um, it's just a story. Now, what relevance it has for me is this. I wonder sometimes why uh, people make choices they make. Now, Gene and I talked on the phone when he called me, and Neither of us were surprised about Gary Haspin, but one of the things we know, and this is the point of my whole lecture, and I want to now place this story within your own context because you know a story like this, or you have a friend like this, or you might be this way yourself, and each of us knows that we have within us uh, the possibility of becoming anything. One of the things that I want to believe to be true, and one of the things that Christianity teaches us, and part of why I read this introduction about Kunkel this morning, is that heredity and environment in terms of a human being, if we study and look at them, we are probably able to predict human behavior. But we cannot determine it. on either the negative or the positive side of the understanding of determining. When you give the case study to a psychologist and you begin to see early patterns of behavior and developmental uh, problems to where we could predict that this human being at some time is going to have to go into a radical transformation. That's predictable. But we can't determine that for him or her. And on the other hand, the fact that one has a certain heredity and a certain environment and all of the wisdom predicts that they will turn out a certain way, it doesn't determine it. People surprise us. And people become something they weren't predicting predicted to become predicted to become it's taken me 20 years to try to get my Oklahoma accent out and it creeps in at the most surprising times predict as in it is Lent (laughs) Lynn. <laughs> I think this is incredibly good news, and if you want something of the hallmark of the Christian idea of, of grace and hope, it's the idea that we may be able to predict, but we cannot determine. Now, you are not determined by your heredity or your environment. You're not a victim. We do have choices and that though we can see that there are sad stories developing and we would like to intervene and make those come out differently, we don't always have the power to do that. We can't determine another's life, but also there's nothing that determines another's life, that there are some choices and some freedom, that we are not destined to Uh, turn out certain ways because of the ways we were raised. And yet for every one of us, for each of us, no matter how dramatic the story might be of of how one's ego, one's self-identity, one's self-esteem, one's sense of worth, how that develops. That each of us is going to have to go through transition after transition and pray that they will be transformations. Some may be as dramatic as the prodigal daughter or son who has to literally go into the muck and mire of a pigsty and eat mm. the pods before they are transformed. And some of us are called to be uh, many crisis individuals. In a series of events and awareness from being an ego star and running onto a, a six, nine and a half boy from Seminole, Oklahoma, who shows you that he can play basketball as well as you, or a 14 year old son saying, Will he remember you? A series of many crises of awareness of how we have to outgrow. And accumulate and integrate every stage of our development and we can't stay uh, in any one stage and that the way the ego develops the way the personality develops is through these crises and we can do them self-consciously uh, we can take advantage of the crises that present themselves and do the growth at the moment or we can wait until life will shake us and literally throw us down and turn us around until we make our change. Well, we have the choice about that, but we don't have any choice about the fact that it will happen to us. That every human being will come to a place in his relationship with himself or a relationship with another or a relationship with an institution, come to a place of growth that something dramatic is going to have to change. The crisis will present itself. And then we have some choices about how we do that. Uh, If, then, we move back to what it is that we fundamentally are always talking about in this place, and that is the religious issue, let's try to get conscious for a moment about why it is that the church, in its wisdom, forces us every year to go through a Lenten journey. I mean, in the same way that the Spirit drove Jesus into the desert, as a part of the baptismal story. When we began making the chapters and verses, we started a new chapter as if that was a different event, but it's part of the baptismal story. As soon as he was baptized, you know, the first, as soon as somebody says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The first thing we ought to do with that person is send him out to, to the desert. I don't know of any greater ego inflation or star ego quality than to tell somebody they're the son of God. And so with the baptism, when the skies opened and a voice said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He is the Messiah. The Spirit drove him into crisis where he had to deal with all of his destructive tendencies. You remember the three big ones that were offered to him. He would satiate all of his appetites and instincts, bread, turn the stone into bread, so that you'll never have to worry about any of your appetites. Always be satiated. Second was safety, which is always compared to security, two different things. Each of us wants safety, and that is that we won't have to go through the deaths of life. Remember, he said, throw yourself off the temple and and don't get hurt. The angels will protect you, offer you safety. And the third was power. Now, those tend to make a summary list of all the most destructive tendencies in human beings they will tend to have to do with the desire to never get hurt that's a strong motivating force in human beings the fear of being hurt the pain satiating appetites that selfishness that need to satiate my own appetite be it physical or spiritual and the third is power over Everybody, everyone, ultimate power. If you take those free temptations out, you've eliminated all temptation. And so in this ego inflation of Jesus saying, you're the greatest basketball player to ever come out of uh, Nazareth. The first thing they did was put him in crisis to where he had to have an ego transformation uh, to have the <coughs> breadth, and depth to deal with the life that was going to be placed before such a strong personality. Now we always confuse this safety issue of not being hurt with security. What we really are offered in Christianity is security, and that is to say that you can withstand any pain. That's not what we want to hear. What we want to hear is I won't have to experience any pain. That's safety. Security says you will sustain You will be secure through. You will be able to sustain, to survive, to persevere. I mean, it's an honest thing to want to do. Even after Jesus, if you follow the story closely, even after Jesus wrestled with the temptation uh, to never have to be hurt, uh, some of the last words that are recorded off his lips were, don't make me do this. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to have to do that very natural. There's something about life that forces us to, drives us to crisis in order that we can grow. Now, this is what Kunkel is saying about why it is that he's Christian and why it is that the Christian religion, even in spite of the Christian church, that the Christian religion perseveres and prospers is because of its continuing story of death and resurrection. Now in Lent we are reminded of the fact that we have to go to the desert and there get in touch with our thirsts, whatever they are, uh, to realize that we have to grow in order to become or stay alive because if we stay still we begin to die. And we know that that growth costs us You can enumerate them in your own life. And one of the things that it costs us is both safety and painlessness. But we have to go if we're going to become. And life has a way of creating that crisis for us. And the church does it for us every year and says, this is a critical period for you to evaluate where it is that you need to grow. And a symbol of what it that you need to learn to live without. You know, I would not make any kind of uh, obvious and pedestrian comments about the symbols we use for what it is that we can live without. Now, I want to end by going back to my friend, Gene Johnson, and my other friend, the doctor who is at this moment in jail, is that the story just didn't open. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. I can't determine it. But I do know that the death that's going on with my friend as much as I would like to project on to him all of the self-righteousness of what great choices I've made and how I have become a parish priest and given my life to others where he's taken all of his life, as much as I would like to project all of that self-righteousness, the facts are that his story is my story. That my prisons are different my selfishnesses are different my mistakes are different and for some reason uh, i've chosen to do mine in little pieces rather than huge ones but it's no different i I still have to travel through the desert and the deep dark uh, valley of the shadow of death just as much as he does And the other thing in the nature of love is that I've never been able to be satisfied with any small, indeed, modicum of wholeness that I've ever experienced when there's somebody else who isn't yet whole. I mean, until all of us are able to deal with our wild beasts, and none of us. To be self satisfied. Until the whole world has become whole, none of us can be satisfied with any sense of our own success or growth. And so, greater love hath no one than to have love for his or her brother. Because there story is our story names and faces are different circumstances are different but nobody avoids the desert the valley or the cross they just have different locations they just have different names and faces at different times but one of the rules is that you don't come to an empty tomb except through the hardwood of a cross the transition and transformation don't come unless you come to them through the narrow gate and every person has his or her own I say that only because I have been inside the psyches of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in my career and I know from experience that no one gets off the hook And I'm not sure that the dramatic external ones aren't easier than those small, cautious, fearful, uptight, small crises that we grind out Wednesday after Wednesday. It might be easier to just stand up and go to hell and get it over. And then come back. And some are called to that. And we ne- need not judge them any more than those of us who are neurotic whiners
1: <laughs>
0: about how tough it is. It's just different. That's all. And so, uh, it's not been determined among those three stories which is the, su- the success story. It's just not been determined. And God knows there is no self-righteousness in me that would try to determine that. I have enough to do with my own prison. And I have enough hope to realize that we're eventually all going to be set free. Um.